<laughs> this little Sound steamy so thing. Much yeah, it's, it's okay. It was like, <laughs> we had an Right, right, right. So you get a little bit of the clang, clang. But then it's like, <laughs> psh. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. All right. Welcome to the Climate Workshop Podcast. I'm Peter Bowden. And I'm Tim DeChristopher. We're working through the challenges of the climate crisis from the uncharted to the unthinkable. And we're here today at the Bethel AME Church in Boston, Massachusetts, where we're here in the office of Reverend Mariama White-Hammond. Mariama, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for, for being willing to join us in this conversation. You want to tell us just a little bit about what your position here at Bethel AME is? Mm-hmm. So, um, at Bethel, I'm the Minister for Ecological Justice, um, and uh, we use the word eco- ecological as opposed to environmental, and that's mostly because ecology is broader. It's about a system of relationships. Um, a lot of times when we think about a vi- environment, it's something external to us, but the ecology is something that we are part of. Um, and so, um, really in my work, I do do a lot around what would be considered traditional, more environmental issues, but I'm also active on issues of immigration, um, criminal justice reform, variety of different things, um, because I think there's some major problems in how we live and, and are with each other um, that climate change is a part of, but it's not the only indication that we've got some problems. And, and in addition to that role here at the church, you definitely, I know, are active in the local climate movement here mm-hmm. in Boston. You and I have worked together on things like the West Roxbury Pipeline fight mm-hmm. and, and the movement there. And there it seems like you play a very different role in the climate movement that is, that is mostly white in this yep. area. Yep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that role? Yeah, so it's interesting um, because so if you went to talk to people in the immigration movement, they would also say I'm a part of their movement. And you talk to people in other movements, they would also say I'm a part. Part of my concern is, um, and the reason that I move in, in a number of different movement spaces is that I believe that we have a profound and fundamental problem about the the sort of state of our society and the state of our world. Um, I don't see those things in buckets like environment, immigration, like. I see them as that we don't know how to live in relationship with each other um, in a way that puts value for life first. And not just human life. There's a lot of different kinds of life that are intricately connected. We don't think about it. We don't think about the like tiny phytoplankton in the ocean that are creating oxygen right now that's allowing us to breathe. Because if they went away, we really couldn't live. So in reality, we are in relationship with them, but we don't think about that relationship. We don't protect that relationship. We don't respect that relationship. So again, like I said, around ecology, it's ecology is about relationships and we've got some profound problems. Um, we have a hierarchy of humans that I think is also highly problematic. Once we slap the title criminal on somebody, we can treat them in ways that we generally agree are torture, but if you're a criminal, it's okay, right? Um, so part of my role, I think, in the in the climate movement and the environmental movement is to help awaken people to that reality. I fundamentally believe that our system as it is is unsustainable, not just because of parts per million in the atmosphere, but because it dehumanizes people. (laughs) Um, And because our communities are being degraded by our need for overconsumption of items that are not making us happier. 
-hmm. We're turning away from each other to work more hours, to consume more stuff, to be more depressed, to go out and, you know, have more mass shootings and all sorts of other things. When in reality, like what we need is to be in relationship with each other and to be in relationship with the nature and to be in relationship with other, you know, life forms. So, you know, for me, there's a profound disconnect. And I, I would like for the climate movement to never talk about environment with also, without also thinking about equity, mm. right? Who is getting the resources? Who is getting too many resources? How do we make that balance better so that we can move back into a kind of harmony with the natural environment and with each other? That I think at, the, at a deep core, it's what we want. Mm -hmm. But, you know... We also probably all sort of want world peace, but we're not doing such a great job working for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they say that Americans see like 3,000 advertisements a day, you know, that all steer us down one path, mm -hmm. like 3,000 reminders a day that, that we're a consumer and that false notions of what will make us happy, you know, and we don't get 3,000 reminders a day of oh. our relationship to the natural Hug world. Hug your child. And, yeah. Say hello to your neighbor slow down when you're driving you know all of these other things that i think we know but we you're right we don't get reminders of mm -hmm. those on a regular basis so so i mean i think you know ask you asked about my unique role in the climate movement a lot of my movement is challenging that predominantly white movement um to recognize um that the problem is bigger than parts per million that it won't be solved if we are willing to let some communities continue to be thrown under the bus mm -hmm. um, and while it is very urgent we certainly should not use the urgency of climate change to justify and replicate unjust systems mm -hmm. that are affecting those people who already didn't consume very much and who already are going to be deeply affected. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's true. And sometimes I, you know, there are times when I am the lone chocolate chip in the bunch. <laughs> but, you know, Part of my work here and in other places in my community is to really develop and support more leaders of color to come into that movement. Right. Um, and also, to some extent, particularly women. Um, I think that there are ways in which women um, have, I think, more ability to see the connection between those things. And it's not that I think we are genetically superior. I just think that from the time that we're young, women are asked to take care of other people. We're not allowed to think, I'm just going to go off and do my own thing. We are trained and supported to build those kind of relationships that make us think about other people at the same time. And, you know, and I, I at some point I want to talk about how I think we are raising our boys with emotional deficiencies yeah. that, that mm -hmm. are crippling them um, and that we all should take responsibility for that. As you, this whole Me Too campaign is, is raising how many men are really off in our society, but it's, it's not just because they're aberrant. We've got some real problems that we do not train our boys to be the kind of empathetic thinking and feeling people that they were made to be. Mm -hmm. we, we kill that in them and then wonder why we have these outcomes. So, so yeah. for me, again, all of these things are deeply connected. Yeah. How will that, we live right? Some of that stuff about the masculinity, I think, has been bubbling up just in, in the past year mm -hmm. with, with Trump tapping into a lot of those narratives of, of toxic masculinity and pushing those. And, and it's been eye-opening for me to see some of that stuff that's out there, like when he gave his whole Pittsburgh, not Paris thing. They clearly had nothing to do with the cities of Pittsburgh or Paris, but had to do with the like images of the masculine mm -hmm. Pittsburgh steelworker mm -hmm. and the effeminate Paris guy, you know, with a beret and a paintbrush or something. And there were 
there was some commentary in it that looked at the memes on the right wing that, yeah. that were pretty shocking to me that, you know, showed pictures of a Prius and said, you keep your fuel efficiency and a picture of three huge pickup trucks right. that said, and I'll keep my masculinity. And I was shocked by those. And I was like, oh my God, your masculinity is something you bought at a truck dealership? Right, right. Is, is, <laughs> is, did you, do you still owe money on it? Yeah. <laughs> did you purchase it outright or did you lease your masculinity? Well, well, the <laughs> irony to me of that is that that just doesn't even align. So most of, many of, many folks who, with whom I say, share a religious background, who would consider themselves Christian, promote those images and I'm like, that doesn't align with Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's not who he was. Right. Um, he wasn't known for like being tough and pushing himself forward. He was known for reaching out to people that other people were like, why are you talking to them? They're not important. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think that there's just this real challenge. There's a fundamental challenge that we need to be willing to look at. And it's so much deeper than parts per million. Yeah. That's a piece of it. I don't want us to lose track of that. I believe in the science, but I think to actually match this crisis, to to rise to the occasion, we actually have to evolve Hmm. in a way that we never have quite before, which I actually find really exciting. Mm -hmm. People are like, how do you find hope in this? Well, the hope for me is I've been wanting this change ever since I can remember. Mm-hmm. From the time I was a little girl, I remember I met Rosa Parks. Um, she came to my preschool and we reenacted the bus boycott for her, which in hindsight, I'm like, she was there. She knows what happened. But OK, <laughs> but maybe it was great to see four year olds, you know, um, do it. But, you know, I think most of my life I've had this since even from a couple of the guys on my street who were involved in gang life and um times when things would look like they were about to get rough, they would send me home. And I remember thinking, they're protecting me because they have this hope and vision for my life. I wish they had that same hope and vision for their own lives. Mm -hmm. Because maybe our communities could be in a different place if so many of our young people, and particularly our young men, did not think that life on the streets or or selling drugs was their only option, Right. right? So. I know there are many people who are awakening, people who are, you know, still working through their disappointment as what they've, what they've seen in the U.S., but I felt that sense that something needed to change for a really long time in my mm-hmm. life. So I'm not happy that we're facing such cataclysmic change. I, 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 I'm not saying that I see the, the, you know, ice caps melting and I'm like, great! No, I do not feel that. I feel the same overwhelmed sometimes and the same sometimes moments of just depression when I think about where we are climate wise Mm -hmm. but I also say to myself and this is probably also connected to my faith tradition I believe that God has called us to be in relationship with each other Mm -hmm. in a powerful way and maybe this is what it will take to get us to be the people that we were made to be We were made to be in a relationship with each other, to see a flood coming and go knock on the door of our neighbor and ask them, are you okay? And even if they're not our blood, to become the family that they need in that moment. We were made to love each other's children, not just the ones that were our own. We were made to see someone at the bottom of their sort of pit and say to them, here's my hand, 
not only am I going to pull you up, I'm going to walk this path with you, even though you're probably going to have some bad moments too. That's what we're here for. And unfortunately, we've decided that our lives are about a whole bunch of other things that I'm not knocking. I have a smartphone like everybody else. I do, you know, I'm, I'm not... I am boycotting the NFL now, but I did. I won my fantasy league last year, and I'm the, I was the only girl in the league, and I won last year. So I'm like everybody else. I live in this system. I'm not completely out of it. But I do have this vision that we could be better. Right. I believe we are better. And sometimes tough situations help us to become the people we were always supposed to be. Right. Yeah, and I know from talking to you in the past and working with you that that you've you've been in a situation of of having to try to expand those narratives mm-hmm. in in multiple directions and build those bridges yep. between different communities and trying to build those relationships and and you you know we've talked in the past about the challenge that you face of trying to engage your black church here mm-hmm. and the black community in the struggle against climate change mm-hmm. when when they face so many other urgent struggles and things that they're they're already fighting against yeah. and and threats that that feel so immediate mm-hmm. and and that are so immediate and you know you were talking about acknowledging this relationship with how we're impacted by plankton how do you get people that are currently threatened by economic insecurity or police violence or you know any of the struggles that are the day-to-day struggles how do you get them to also see that relationship mm-hmm. with plankton yeah well, I mean, I think that the, the first thing is to like pull back. So we often tend to organize in issue silos, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like we make the proposition that like if you care about criminal justice, then you shouldn't have, you don't have time to talk about homelessness. Like, and if you care about like one thing, you don't. So part of it for me is like to say to people, let's first talk about the connections, right? Because there are definite connections. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the powerful moments for me was uh, after Hurricane Katrina, the story came out about you know, that they had no plan to evacuate folks from prison. So for a second, they were going to just leave from there. Mm-hmm. Like, allow the waters to rise and people drown in their cells. Mm-hmm. And that hit me hard because at the time, one of my cousins was locked up. You know, what if we if we had been hit by the same thing? Like, would I have been mourning him? Would I would have had any idea what happened to him? You know, all of those things. So, so I think that for me, part of it is... I. You know, I'm a preacher. I try to tell the stories, both, you know, the ones from the scriptures, the one from our lives, the one from my own life, that help people to see the connection between these things. Because the only time you feel like you have to make a trade-off is if they feel like separate things. Mm -hmm. Now, you might be called to do more in one area than another. But if we all carry the burden for all of these challenges together, realizing that they're interconnected and also realizing that the solutions are also interconnected, right? Mm-hmm. If we had better relationships, maybe some of our families that are struggling would have other outlets and people to help support so young people wouldn't end up going down some of the paths that they did. And then maybe also our elders would not be in left in homes by themselves so that when heat waves come, they die mm-hmm. alone in apartments by themselves. The solution, I think, to most of these problems is weaving tighter relationships and taking care of each other. Because I think once we care about each other, we also might be willing to make some of the sacrifices of comfort for a relationship. We've chosen comfort because I think our communities are degraded. I'd be willing to be more uncomfortable with some other people that I love, Hmm. right? So I think if we're gonna ask people 
to make sacrifices, to do some, you know, pretty radical things and let go of their pickup trucks and walk. And they got to know somebody's going to walk with them, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so I think, you know, some of the proposition to people is I'm not telling you to stop working on criminal justice or to let go of economic justice. Actually, could we be thinking about how we're looking at economic justice and climate together? Um, I know of a group in, in Chicago, for instance, that just did this um, piece where they needed to do more energy efficiency. They wanted to create this core of people who would do energy efficiency audits in, in the community. And the young people who are at the greatest risk for being locked up are kids who were in foster care. They age out, they don't have the relationships and supports that they need, and they usually end up in the prison system. So they said, why? what if we train kids coming out of foster care right out, they would go you know, they would have a direct path into this home energy efficiency program. Mm -hmm. So suddenly, people who thought they were foster care advocates and people who thought they were energy efficiency advocates and eventually people who thought they were, people who thought they were about criminal justice reform are all working on the same thing. Mm -hmm. We don't have to function in silos. Right. There are much better solutions that are available to us when we get in the room and think about how we're attacking multiple challenges at the same time. So, you know, my proposition to, to people is, you may get farther on this thing that you're already working on, right? If we can find ways to bring these together, and particularly if we're working with poor folks who are struggling with 12 things at the same time, shouldn't we be trying to work together to figure out solutions that help people lift people up in three ways at minimum at the same right. time, right? Um, right. So, and, and that's something that, that I know we've talked about in the past is that is that building those those relationships that make the community stronger mm-hmm. and and that being an entry point into the conversation right. about climate change right. starting with that that discussion of climate of right. resilience to climate change where you know normally we have this narrative of climate change that like starts with the problem and where the problem came from like mm-hmm. there was the the industrial revolution and there's these emissions and they have this effect on the atmosphere and then that's going to have this these impacts on our society and then we'll have to be resilient in response to it. and it's like the end of the conversation is is the resilience piece and and one of the things we had discussed a while back is that that end of the conversation could actually be an entry point right into beginning with what resilience looks like for these communities and and how to how to build that and how to expand that awareness into taking into account the threat from climate change. And, and I know you had tried some, some innovative programs here mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, around that, that conversation yeah, about resilience. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to hear an update of yeah. how those conversations have been yeah. going. So, I mean, you're totally right. The, this question of starting from like, oh, we made these decisions and these decisions and they came to that. Well, that makes a lot of sense if you were part of the people that were making the decisions. Mm. But if you were already crapped on by those decisions, like if the Industrial Revolution already didn't fully work out for you while you mm-hmm. got, your job got automated away, right? Um, starting from that place probably asks you to take responsibility for things that you feel like you didn't actually get to choose, mm-hmm. right? If you already take, the public, tra- if you already take public transportation because you can't afford to do anything else, then do you really want to talk about emissions, mm-hmm. right? No, not so much. But if you know that when the flooding comes, your neighborhood is going to get screwed and probably no one is going to be there to help you, that is a probably better place to start from. Um, and so for folks who, again, we could all do better. But some of the communities I worked in, in people already 
turn off the lights and already are trying to, you know, because they don't have the resources to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so this question of, like, if Sandy had hit us, who are the communities that would have been left out? Who would have been struggling? Who would have had to rely on each other when they went down to take care of the fancy houses downtown, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that allows us to ask this question of, if we know this is coming, what can we do together? One, to, you know, to minimize the impact. We still do need to talk about what we need to do. Like, I don't think we should just keep living and waiting until like, it's as worse, the worst that it could be, right? Mm-hmm. So we do talk about that. But how do we, we begin to reweave community that's going to help us to, to face these impacts in a good way? Ultimately, we'll make our community stronger and might also serve as a platform for us to do a series of other things that we also needed to be doing anyway in terms of economic development and in terms of uh, public safety and youth support and all of those other things. So, so if you start from a resiliency perspective, then, the, then knowing each other, planning, and being in relationship um, really become important things to do. So we did do a climate simulation, um, and that part of that was just to really look at and think about what if um, a, a severe stor- storm hit um, Boston, mm-hmm. um, which communities would be affected, where would the water go? Um, we'll be doing even some more of that. Um, and, and who was a part of that simulation? So folks from our congregation, so there were some churches from the city, some churches from the suburbs, uh, or I shouldn't say just churches, it was communities of faith because we had synagogues, so we had a, a, a mix of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a powerful conversation. Um, we did also try to have the conversation with some political folks. That was a little bit more challenging. Um, not sure that we'll do that again. We, we will at some point. But that was uh, a challenge there. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a group of people. So, like, we did a solar panel project here at our church. Um, and in the middle, like, the incentives got cut. And people were like, why did the incentives get cut? So then we started looking at, like, who gets incentives and who doesn't and where the money's gone and where the money hasn't. Mm-hmm. So, like, we're part of a group of folks that are advocating around solar access for all people, right? Mm-hmm. So the, And then there's folks who are involved around environmental justice. This question of, like... If your community already has toxics in it, what will happen if a flood also hits? Right. And then maybe we need to clean that stuff up now because you don't want to have the same toxic brew they had in New Orleans where people were just like, I see something in the water. I don't know what it is. I don't know if it might kill me. You know, and, so and I just think... this summer in Houston, that was a huge issue. Yeah. I mean, the yeah. refineries flooding, they had... All kinds of stuff that was in the water there, yeah. you know, and as well in Puerto Rico, you know, they had a lot of Superfund sites that flooded, and people didn't have any other access to drinking water, right? Other than right. what was coming out of Superfund right. sites. So I think that sometimes starting from that other end, for folks who know they will face that, because they, you know, none of us will be fully exempt, but there's some communities that seem to always come out on top, yeah. <laughs> um, always get what they need, and others that don't. Um, and in relationship with folks who have been in some of the communities where folks are struggling more. Um, this question of how do we think about what we need both now and in the future um, to be ready and and part of that is is also recognizing that we shouldn't wait for somebody else right Uh, that some of the work is being ready ourselves um, knowing how to rely on each other knowing what resources we want to make sure are physically present in that community so that we are Mm-hmm. are more prepared. And I think that gives people a little bit more um, space to to recognize that climate change is not just 100 years away. It's now. Mm-hmm. 
I think it also helps us to get real in a way that's not just depressing. Because sometimes you hear these statistics and you're just like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die. You know what I mean? And if you feel like that, then sometimes you can, I think you can just move into denial mode. Like, well, there's nothing I can do about it, so I'm just going to keep living, right? But if you start from the perspective of like, there, how do we start thinking about what we can do? And you get people on that path of thinking that through. I also think they're going to come to the logical conclusion Maybe we should do some things to make sure it's also not as bad mm-hmm. versus saying like, oh, there's this impending damage coming. Yeah. Try to stop it from coming. Like, have, have you seen that reaction here with the people who were part of that discussion and in that program around resilience? Yeah, yes. Well, so some, yes. Like there are some people and it's, it's also who self-selects to come to it. So some mm-hmm. of the folks that definitely came, it, it both increased their awareness around climate change, but also this kind of sense of the need to build stronger neighborhoods. So I, you know, I definitely saw that sort of connect happen, happening for people, um, which is powerful because we also know that we've got to stop shipping things all over the world and start getting much more local if we're really going to like decrease our climate, mm-hmm. you know, um, risk. So now one thing I didn't quite get through to people that, I, you know, maybe next year we're going to try this is around agriculture and meat and other things so that didn't i remember somebody brought this up and people were like what does that have to do with anything okay moving on (laughs) but but i think on the whole yeah i mean it made you start thinking about how do we think creatively so one of the things we did is a game where you had to think about how you're going to give resource spend resources and each person played for a particular character that had a particular set of interests Hmm. and this question of how will we balance different people's interests, different people's needs, um, how do we begin that? And that's really about getting better around dialogue, getting better, that's democratic work, right? Yeah. And we certainly could use some of that right about now, yeah. right? So, so I think that like, ultimately what we found in that exercise is it just brought people together, start figuring out how um, to bring their different resources and skills together to figure out a solution to a problem, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to minimize um, loss, right? right? Um, I mean, I, I could see like two two distinct reactions coming out of that. Mm-hmm. One that looks at that resilience and and has a reaction of like, oh wow, we actually have a lot more resources and strengths here among our community than we thought we did, mm-hmm. and you know, actually we we can tackle this challenge mm-hmm. and it's like empowering in that way mm-hmm. or, you know, also finding major like red flags of like, Oh, actually if this happened, we'd be really screwed. Like, right. We have right. a major gap in our resilience here. In, yeah. And in, in, in any combination in between the two of those. We, the time that people spend together wasn't long enough to get down to everything. Mm-hmm. Cause I think the more they drill, so different groups, came to different sets of conclusions, I think based on what they ended up focusing on the most, right? So I think um, the question is, could we go longer? Should we go longer? You know, or, yeah. So there's a lot of, I think, that you could continue to go through if you if it was a more iterative cycle. Um, but I think the other thing that was really interesting, so we learned a lot about what the city of Boston was trying to do, and there was a real strong reaction to this, like, proposal to create a seawall. Mm-hmm. People were very fascinated by that and like who would win and who would lose. Who's in inside the wall, who's outside. Wall, right, so that yeah. that certainly came up as a as a thing. But one of the other things that people talked about is um, 
you're in this group and you're trying so the game that we played you sort of win points if you can get the rest of the group to to support the things that are your interests right mm-hmm. um and so it's like so, capitalism yeah <laughs> but it's also it's also the real deal i mean you had a parent whose number one thing was what are going to be the resources available for children right or you had somebody who was a journalist who has really thought it was important that whatever we do, people get to tell their stories. So they, not all of them were bad things, right. right? But the point is, how do you start coming up with plans? It doesn't negate your idea. If that has something to add, great. But one of the problems we have in this and many other things is the false notion that we have to choose between two opposing things. Mm. Now, you ha- people have to make tough choices. That's not what I'm saying. But this notion that we start off with, that if you get what you want, I am inherently not going to get what I want, mm-hmm. as opposed to, could we lay bare the 10 things that you know, we want to do, and how could we come up with a plan that does its best to address all of those things? Unfortunately, we are not taught or raised enough to approach problems collaboratively. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... That was some of where the like there were some groups that went in some like you know I'm a I'm a person that um, can get competitive. I've come to a place in my life where I stop and I say, is this okay for competition or not? If you tell me it's okay for competition, I will be trying to crush you. Like fantasy mm-hmm. football, I don't just want to win. I want to have the most points, right? In other things like life <laughs> and things that really matter, competition is unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Because while I'm trying to beat you down, I might not get what I need, and I might look up and I've hurt you in ways that I couldn't imagine and were not my intention. Mm-hmm. So pushing people beyond that narrow focus right. um, and saying, how do we create systems that try to think about everyone? And eventually, how do we create systems that put the resources and needs of the most vulnerable first and the rest of us take a hit? Because we can afford to, mm-hmm. so that everybody survives. Yeah. We didn't get to and that level of, of sophistication, you know, in the simulation, but it did allow people to start talking about this question of how do we think about everyone's needs and, and not get caught in a sub, zero sum game that in order for me to get what I need, unfortunately, I have to sacrifice you. Right, <laughs> right. And that can be like a major revelation just in and of itself. I mean, yeah. I remember for me, that was a really liberating realization. Like when I first sort of internalized the reality of the climate crisis and the hardships that we'd be going through, uh, I had a, a kind of paralyzing period there where I was thinking about those negative impacts mm-hmm. and thinking, man, is this contraction in our society going to be like a, a sort of natural selection or unnatural selection right. for... For the people that are most willing to turn against one another, for mm-hmm. the people that are most willing to do ruthless things to their fellow human beings in order to survive. And, you know, and that sent me down like a, a really ugly mental path of, mm-hmm. of sort of imagining what that collapse could look like. But then, you know, the, actually the more I thought about that, the more I realized that it could just as well be a natural selection for those who are most willing to cooperate and to help each other out mm-hmm. and and to support one another and build strong communities um, but that neither was neither was inevitable neither one of those paths right. was inevitable 
and that that, that was part of the choice that we're right. facing here is are we going to respond to these hardships which to some degree are now inevitable mm-hmm. are we going to respond to them by turning against one another or turning towards one another mm-hmm. and are we going to is it going to be a selection for cooperation right. or a selection for the most ruthless kind of competition well the reality is i think you're right neither path is inevitable but turning against each other is certainly easier Mm-hmm. And if we're going to turn toward each other, we can't be making it up on that day. Right. And so what we have to, those of us who believe around climate, I hear all the, you know, we think that the sense of urgency is around the policies and, and I believe that too. But we also have to lay the foundation for people, communities, and a society that values turning towards each other, mm-hmm. and that helps people to develop the actual skills required to negotiate that well. Mm-hmm. Because I believe at our, found, our foundation, we want to be good to each other. We want to be in relationship with each other. The, the times when we don't do it is because we're afraid and, or we don't know how. If we can help people know how, that helps them to begin imagining that we can and live into the best of who they are rather than, you know, unfortunately follow the path to the worst of who we can be. So it is not inevitable that we will do the right thing, but it is also not inevitable that we'll do the wrong thing. Um, Because at our core, I think we want to do what's right. Um, But we'll only do that if the right relationships and systems are in place to do that. Right. And, af- and after, you know, hundreds of years of, of capitalism, of racism, mm-hmm. of white supremacy, of, of patriarchy, you yeah. know, like the inertia. Yeah. Our defaults are not so good. Right. The, <laughs> the inertia is not good right now. Right. You know, and that means that means that our task is to really create a whole new narrative right. and really reimagine what society can be. In an urgent time frame. Right. And that's why climate activists need to take that seriously. So I remember somebody was telling me who does work with a group of people who are doing work around the pipeline. And she was trying to convince them to show up um, to some work around racism. And they were like, what does it have to do with the pipeline? Okay. I totally agree. And I will show up for people around the pipeline. But again, if you believe that we're creating a new society, we got to start being that new society right now. Yeah. Not just on the issue that's down the street from you, but like on the much larger piece, mm-hmm. right? Um, and again, I, I, I'm not saying, I mean, I'm sure that person feels the urgency of the specific issue that they're, they're in. But, part, but. Of the, part of the trap there that the climate movement has fallen into is that, that we've been told for a while in the climate movement that, that we have to present an optimistic sort of image of how we're gonna solve the climate crisis and how it'll be great and you know, we'll avoid all of those worst case impacts. Yeah, that's over. And yeah, you know, but <laughs> but we've, I mean, we've known at least since 2009 and the failures of, in Copenhagen, the failure of U.S. climate uh, legislation, we've known that it was too late to stop climate change. And, and yet we've been told not to say that. Mm-hmm. And so we haven't really acknowledged that reality that, that this is going to be that, that critical juncture where we're going to have to choose which path we're going down. Right. Um, 
because we're still telling each other these lies about how maybe we can make it okay, like maybe we can limit climate change to, to 1.5, or if not 1.5, maybe we could limit it to 2C, yeah, you know? Yeah, and I mean, I, you hear these people selling these, like, carbon capture. Like, I, I hope it works. I hope you can suck carbon out of the atmosphere. But I'm certainly not putting all my hope there. Like, I hope some researchers off trying to figure that out. Right. You know, just like maybe it's great that people are trying to figure out how to get to Mars, but I'm not putting my hope there. Um, and and if the solutions that we have make us better people, then they're worth pursuing anyway. I was a few months ago. I was talking to someone who's not a full-on climate denier, but a climate skeptic, let's say. And I said to him, "Well, is any of the things I'm advocating about what we need to do?" Could you tell me if you think those are bad things? Like you using less, spending more time together, being more local, um, looking out for each other and having a plan in case of emergency. He said, no. I said, okay, well then you don't have to believe in climate change. If you will just do these things and join us in those efforts, you, we'll see what happens in 10 years. I'm pretty sure 10 years from now, you're going to be a believer, not because I told you, but just because gonna, we're going to live it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think, you know, sometimes I'm concerned. I'm not saying we should allow people who are blatantly lying to stand. But, like, I'm not sure I'm going to spend a ton of energy yelling at someone who's a climate denier. Because the truth is, I know denial well. I know people who have addictions. You cannot prove, tell an alcoholic they're an alcoholic if they don't want to believe it. Mm-hmm. That's a waste of your time. It's not going to use. Now, someday they will f- unfortunately fall down the steps or steal from their child or do something, get into a car accident that will make them come to a realization. But you can't make someone hit rock bottom. You can't make someone acknowledge something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if that's a good use of our time. What you can do is create the kind of loving community that the person's going to need when they come out of it. Because the beautiful thing is, once they come to the other side often, they will be your biggest advocate. They will be strident. They will be committed. um, Because they will know (laughs) how bad it can be, right? And so I think that there's, you know, there's just times where I'm just not sure that we've been really strategic. And I think this is Mm -hmm. one, like pretending like, we can fix it. Uh, No, we can't. We can make it better than mm-hmm. the worst. But at this point, it's going to be bad. Right. But we can face that together in a way that doesn't have to be catastrophic or cataclysmic. Right. Because if we took care of each other... And we can face it in a way that brings out the best in our humanity right? instead right. of the worst. And we may find things along the way, old things that we threw away that were worth preserving, mm-hmm. and new things we didn't imagine because we were siloed. Um, so for me, again, I'm excited, not because I think it's all going to be peachy and awful, but if, if I'm going to struggle again, I'll do it with people I love and feeling connected. Um, and right now I think, honestly, people feel so disconnected. Mm -hmm. People feel, you know, a lot of people are like, I don't understand, you know, all the folks who support Trump. I, they believe something is profoundly wrong and needs to change and I do too. Now, let's have a deeper dialogue about what we think is profoundly wrong. And I want to tell you from my own perspective why I can't go back to the old way. That old way did not work for me as a woman, as a black person, as a Christian who believes in justice. I'm not interested in going back. 
but I believe that we might be able to go forward and find something better than what we believe that old past was. Mm -hmm. I believe that even a lot of those folks that probably on the political spectrum I don't agree with, they want something better too. I mean, I, I'm not exactly happy about this current solution. I'm not going to be here. But I believe about them what I've already been saying. At their core, we want to do this and we want to be the best people. If we don't think that's possible, we will revert to another way of being that protects ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, not justifying it, but I get it. I see it all the time as a, as a pastor. You have people come in. You st I don't know what's wrong, okay? Mm, I think you could ask five people in your life and they'd probably tell you. But it's not my job to like tell them right away. Mm -hmm. It's my job to help them see that and then find the courage to change that thing because just knowing what it is is not enough. Um, so we as a society, I think in many ways we know what's wrong. We know that something's wrong. We know that something needs to change. But we need help um, finding the courage to face that thing and then change. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think we're stuck. Right. Um, and, we're, and, and that takes a lot of courage when we're stuck in a comfortable position. Right. And I think climate change is, is part of that force that's pushing us out of that comfortable slump mm -hmm. and saying, you don't have a choice to be courageous right, right. now. You've got to do it. You don't have a choice to create a new future or a new society or a new narrative. You've got to do it. And that's the point that we're at. And that's in some ways an exciting, exciting place to be. Yeah. Well, I can't change the, the weather, but I can be part of creating that new society. And that's what I find exciting. Well, thanks for doing that work. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. And thanks for joining us on the Climate Workshop podcast. Thanks a lot. It's been good to talk. Our music is by our friend, colleague, and favorite troubadour, Brian Cahall. You can find us online at climateworkshop.org and on Facebook and Twitter at Climate Workshop. Climate Workshop podcast is made possible by our listener community. That's right, no sponsors, just you, me, and Tim. You can go to climateworkshop.org and click become a patron. We're in this together, so we appreciate your support. Still light that flickers, there's a light that still burns on. Light that flickers, there's a light that still burns on. I take care of the spark, but baby, won't you lend your pretty little palm just to shield it from the wind? And honey, baby, maybe this light will be burning long.